There are things that happen in the course of our lives that, that we would define as unbelievable. Whether it's running into someone you haven't seen in 20 years at a place that is hundreds of miles from where either of you live, or maybe you hit a hole in one on that par three you've been taking shots at your whole life. Well, if you expand beyond your own experiences, and even beyond your sphere of friends and family to what, to what we can see on the news or maybe posted on social media, we see even more things that we would probably define as unbelievable. Whether it's someone meticulously working to finally make a trick shot, or someone performing a stunt, or performing a magic trick on one of the many televised talent shows that, that we have available to us, we've probably all uttered this phrase, that's unbelievable. In fact, with the barrage of media that can come at us at any time, I'm betting you might have said, that's unbelievable, in just the past few days. Well, you know where I'm driving with this train of thought. We've been looking at the story of Abraham over the past several weeks, and God has made a promise to Abraham that is, in fact, frankly, unbelievable. They're going to have a child, which, if you didn't know the story, you might seem, God promised somebody a child? That's no big deal. People have kids every day. What's going on? Well, when you know the details, that God has made this promise to a man who is 99 and his wife, who by our standards, we would consider to be quite a bit younger than him, but still pretty old, we find out that not only is this person old, but she's been barren her entire life. And on top of it all, God keeps making this promise. We've been seeing this for chapter after chapter. God has made a promise, and nothing is happening. Nothing. It's been quite a few years since God first told Abraham of this substantial promise. And if this promise was really legitimate, why hasn't God done something about it yet? What's the point in all this delaying? Well, if you've been following along through our series, as we've been in Genesis and discovering the life and times of Abraham, you know the answer, right? As I said last week, this is not a comeback story that we're learning about right now. This is not a comeback. This is not set up to be a scenario of being down by 25 points with only five minutes left to play, and, and he's going to come back and win. This is not being down by 10 runs with two outs in the bottom of the ninth with the best closer in the league on the mound. That's not what the story is here. This is not a comeback story. This is a resurrection story. And we're meant to feel the tension here in this text. This couple, God has promised a child to are old and her womb is dead. We're meant to say, that's unbelievable. And we see in the passage that we read today that we aren't the only ones who are saying that's unbelievable. Abraham, Abraham and his wife both find the promise of God to be outrageous and unbelievable themselves. Now we have a pretty big chunk of text here that we're working through and we're looking for the big picture. And so I have three main points today that are going to be vital in helping us to understand 
and apply this passage. So, the first thing that we're going to see is that God establishes out loud what we've been seeing somewhat covertly in the text all along. God confirms that the child of the promise will come through Sarai. In fact, to confirm this truth, he gives her a new name. Just as he changed Abram's name, she is also going to have to go down to the DMV and get a new license. Joking aside, this is an important part of the story. As we've seen, Abram isn't the problem in this childless scenario. At the suggestion of his wife, we saw that he got together with Hagar and a child was conceived and born. Everything works on Abram's end. Well, in order for us to understand that this is a resurrection story, it's vital that we know that the promise is to come through Sarai. And secondly, we see that even though Ishmael is not the child of the promise, he is brought into the covenant community. And last week, we, we saw God's command to circumcise those in his household as a sign of the covenant. And this week, we find that Abram is, Abraham is faithful to put this covenant sign not only on himself, but to all the males in his household as he was commanded by God. And finally, we see that God is going to take the laughter of derision that both Abraham and Sarah have towards the likelihood of this promise happening, and he's going to turn it into joy. He's going to take that laughter of unbelief and make it laughter of joy. God visits them, and he lets them know when to expect this promise to be fulfilled, despite the unbelief of the parents. This child is going to come, and their disbelief will be turned to joy. And with so much to cover, we're going to jump in right away and get to verses 15 through 19. And it's important that we remember where we're coming from here. God has just changed Abram's name to Abraham, and he's given them a sign of the covenant in circumcision. Now, we broke off there last week, but, but this is one story. This is one congruent bunch of text. And we're now getting to the part of the story that will address Sarai. And she is getting a name change, too. The story, the story seems to have focused on Abraham for the last several chapters, but we have seen the importance of his wife's involvement, too. She isn't a side character that can be just brushed aside. Abraham isn't going to just find himself a woman with a womb that, that can bear him a child, and suddenly, poof, the promise of God is fulfilled. No, we see that Sarai is important because we saw the way that she was protected in Egypt. And we got a glimpse that this promised child would absolutely come through her. And after the incident with Hagar, we're seeing the full sense in which the promise is to Abraham, but it is through Sarai that the promised child will come. So what is with the name change here? With Abraham, we saw his name change from Abram, which mean, meant father, to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude of nations. Well, with Sarah's name being changed to Sarah, it isn't quite as easy to understand what's going on here because both Sarai and Sarah, they both mean the same thing. They both mean princess. So why the change? If they both mean the same thing, why did God bother to change her name? Well, 
after doing some research and, and stewing on why this name change happened in the first place, I think the best way to understand this change of name is that Sarai is her past. It's her past. That is the barren woman. That is the woman whose womb is dead. That was the name given to her by her father. That's who she was. And now she has a small tweak to her name being called Sarah. That is her future. And it's the name spoken upon her by God. It's God who makes her a princess and will give her many descendants who will lead to the promised Messiah who is to come. The name means the same thing, but the promise upon her from God is what makes her who she will be. In other words, her life is going to be defined by God and not her past. And she is a participant in this promise right along with Abraham. And we see this from what Abraham has to say. He, he says that, that she will be blessed. God says that she will be blessed. And he'll give her a son. And notice the expansion that we saw last week talked about with Abraham. It's also true of Sarah. She will become one who has children that from her come nations and kings. And this is huge. A nearly 90-year-old woman is being told that she will bear a child and from her will come not just a child, but the child and their offspring will be blessed beyond measure. God is confirming what he has said before. The child of the promise is not going to be from Ishmael, but a new child will come from Sarah. Well, Abraham does something he did before. He falls on his face, an act of submission before God. Now, we saw him do this last week, but this time we have a new wrinkle. He laughs. Now, he isn't recalling a good joke, and his servants aren't tickling him. This is a laugh of derision toward what God has said. But let's not be too hard on old Abraham here. If you were to hear that a 90-year-old woman would bear a child, you'd have yourself a pretty good little chuckle too. Let's be honest. That's just the way things work. And while it's obviously terrible to laugh at the promise that God is making to you, the whole thing is absurd, and it's supposed to be absurd. That's the point. As I said last week, the story of Abraham and Sarah having a child, not a comeback story. And it's easy to fall into that mindset. This whole story is absurd because, as I said before, this is a resurrection story. It's supposed to be impossible. It's supposed to be laughable. And we see why Abraham laughs. He, he doesn't think it's possible for a 90-year-old woman to bear a child. And so he makes a plea to God. He requests that Ishmael might live before God. And while we see unbelief in what Abraham says here. Isn't it a natural response? Isn't this what you would do too? Ishmael's his son. He loves him. He cares for him. And he's right in front of him. He's in front of his face. He is real. Ishmael's real. He's, he's, we read here later on, he's 13 years old. He can be touched. He's not a promise that's far off. 
He's not a promise that God has been taking his dear old time in keeping. He's right there in front of him. But what does God do? He lets Abraham know that this isn't up for negotiation. This is similar to the times a a child tries to negotiate with a parent after the parent has made it very clear what their decision is. I think we've all been there, whether we were the parent or the child. No amount of begging or whining is going to change the mind of God. But he lets Abraham know that he is going to be gracious to Ishmael, even though he isn't the child of the promise. But before we see what is promised about Ishmael, we get details about the actual child of the promise. We've been hearing about this child, and now we have the details. His name will be Isaac, which means he laughs. Do you get the irony here? Abraham laughs at the notion of having a child, and that is what his child is named. God is going to use the fact that Abraham laughed in doubt and derision, and he is going to turn that into joy. A child will bring Abraham and Sarah, who both laugh in unbelief, that same child will bring them joy. That child will bring them laughter. And isn't this what God so often does? He can turn our doubts into joy because when we truly understand the covenant faithfulness of God to his people, we find the peace that passes all understanding because we know that he brings salvation to his people. He gives us joy. Even when we doubt whether or not that salvation is even possible, we look to the cross and we see the promise of salvation and he brings us joy in the truth of who he is and how he has saved us. And we have seen here that God shows what has been subtly in the text so far that the child will come through Sarah. But what about Ishmael? What do we see here and what can we do with this part of the text as we look at the next bunch of verses? Even though he's not the child of the promise, God still promises to bless Ishmael. The conception and birth of Ishmael We're outside of what God intended for Abraham. But God is still generous. He doesn't need to be. God never said that everything Abraham did ever would be prosperous and and be sparkly sunshine and roses. What happened and how they got Ishmael was not in God's plan. He stepped outside of what God intended. And Ishmael is a persistent reminder of the impatience the unbelief that Abraham and Sarah exhibited. But still, God is gracious, right? Ishmael is going to be remembered. He will father princes and he will be made into a great nation. Yet, all of this is not the point of the promise that God made to Abraham. And I think this is really awesome because it shows what the point of the promise is. When God promised to bless Abraham and make him a blessing, it wasn't about wealth or positions of power or Abraham being happy to have a child. It was about the promise. It was about those words that we've been tracking in a detailed way all the way back from Genesis 3.15 that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The promise to Abraham is first and foremost about the Messiah who will rescue the people of God from sin, death, and hell, and the devil. It is a spiritual promise. It's not a promise 
to bless Abraham with material wealth and a bunch of kids. It is a spiritual promise about the salvation of God's people. But we come back to Ishmael. We see here that Abraham is faithful to do what God has commanded him to do in the previous chapter. All this talk of circumcision is a little uncomfortable for us. But as we drew out last week, circumcision is about consecrating to God the reproductive process because from that will come this promised Messiah. But even those, even those who would never be considered to lead to the promised Messiah, they're supposed to have this done. Now, this part of the text, I don't know about you, kind of gives me a little bit of a chuckle as I imagine how these conversations went down. Can you imagine what the response was from the male servants? We're going to do what now? But it wasn't just the servants. Abraham did this himself. It was done to his son Ishmael also. They were all a part of this ritual act. This is not only huge because it shows the obedience of Abraham to the commands of God, but it points us, as we so often see in the book of Genesis, it points us to our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, I mentioned that circumcision and the blood that was shed pointed to the salvation that would come through the shedding of Christ's blood for us. This week, we see with what is happening in circumcision that even those who are not in the promised line of the Messiah are brought into the covenant through this covenant sign. They receive the sign of the covenant, even though not one of them is set apart as one who will be in the reproductive line to the Messiah. To be a part of the covenant people of God did not mean they needed to be of a particular ethnicity. All of these people are brought in. And this points us to salvation because in the new covenant, the covenant that we are in with God, we are all brought into the family of God, regardless of our ethnicity. We are part of the family of God by grace, through faith. And while to our modern sensibilities, this whole, this whole scene we have in front of us in these verses seems strange and frankly maybe even a little barbaric, the truth here in these words is that they are a beautiful picture of what is coming to us in the gospel. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation experiencing being brought into the covenant faithfulness of God. And look at the diversity of people that are brought into the covenant community here. All the men of his house, the ones who were born there, and those bought from a foreigner, they'll receive the sign of the covenant regardless of where they come from. They are brought into the covenant family. And while the world might see what is being done to them, as a curse, it is a blessing of God to his people and a sign that they will be kept by him. And so as we progress to our third point today, we get a deeper look into the perspective of Sarah. We haven't gotten much into her thoughts yet, have we? But we see the details in how this covenant promise is going to be fulfilled. And so what happens? We know this story. I think it's a popular Sunday school story. The Lord appears to Abraham. And I've always been really struck by this story. It's just kind of cool that, that God appears to Abraham and Sarah in this way. For me, one of the fascinating elements is that Abraham just knows that this is the Lord because he bows himself down. He puts himself in subjection to God. 
And we don't know how he knows, but his response shows that he understands who is in his presence. Because when people bow down like this, it's an indication to us that they know that they're in the presence of Almighty God. Happens all throughout Scripture. And not only does he bow down, but clearly the Lord receives Abraham's actions and he stays with him as he requests. Now Abraham has Sarah make them cakes and he has a calf prepared for them. And I get a kick out of this phrase. It says, who prepared it quickly? Now this wasn't a drive through kind of quick here. Uh, as we mentioned when we talked about the covenant uh, ceremony where Abraham cut the animals in half, they didn't have the clean instruments that we do now. To butcher an animal like this didn't happen quickly. It, when it says that it was prepared quickly, it doesn't mean that it was done super fast. This wasn't a five-minute deal. It means that it was a priority. And it was done as quickly as they could, which was probably still so, super slow by our fast food standards. But the idea here is that Abraham is a gracious host. And he is offering himself in complete service to his guests. Now, this is important because coming up in a few weeks, we're going to see a contrast. We're going to see Abraham, who is a gracious host, contrasted with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to get to that story, and we're going to see how the two uh, contrast to each other. But we can see this hospitality on display, not only in their being quick about what they're doing, but also in the fact that he stood by them under the tree while they ate. He stood. He isn't eating himself. He, he's standing at the ready, waiting to continue to serve them. But our bigger picture focus in this part of the passage is, in fact, on Sarah. They inquire where Sarah is, and after Abraham lets them know, he says that they will come back around this way in a year or so, and by then he and Sarah shall have a son. Great! After all these years of wandering throughout the wilderness, we've got a date. Let's plan a party, a gender reveal, all this kind of stuff, and let's go. But Sarah overhears this. And like so many Bible stories, it's easy for us to be aghast at her response. But if we're honest, like I said previously with Abraham, it's likely we would probably respond in very much the same way that Sarah did. Remember what I've been driving home here about this not being a comeback story. This resurrection story that we're looking at is supposed to be unbelievable, and that's what's playing out right here in front of us. Even though we've been beat over the head with the fact that Abraham and Sarah are old, we're told once again, and this time, the text makes sure we get the picture just in case we haven't been paying attention. Look at what it says. It says that the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And as I've drawn out before so many times, she isn't just barren. Her womb is dead. A long time ago, that was closed up shop, and they hung out a sign that said, out of business. The idea here is that there is no chance, no chance for a child. But God is saying that this is a done deal. There will be a child about a year from now. But like Abraham, Sarah doubts and laughs to herself, something you and I would have done too, but she makes a mistake 
at laughing in the presence of the omniscient Almighty One. And so the Lord asks why she laughed and asks an important question that we should spend time to consider and meditate on ourselves. And that question is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, of course nothing is. And that's the point here. God can do anything, even resurrect the dead womb of Sarah. God can do anything, even resurrect our dead and unbelieving hearts. God can do anything. He can defeat sin, death, and hell in the life, death, and resurrection of God the Son. Are you feeling the story here? Are you feeling what's going on at the deeper level and the connection that Genesis is making with what will come in the person and work of Jesus Christ? This story here in Genesis is not just a morality tale to tell us that we shouldn't doubt God. It is here to point to the coming redemption, the coming redemption that you and I will have and how God is going to save his people by resurrecting them from the dead. He's going to bring life where there is death. He is the God who will resurrect their hearts, and he is the God who at the end of history will bring them up from their graves. And as we relish in this important truth, I want us to draw out one specific application that we can have as we step out into God's world to serve him in this coming week. And looking at this story, it's important that we remember that God can take any circumstance and turn our unbelief into joy. As I said with both the reaction of Abraham and Sarah, it is so easy to look down on them. But the reality of the matter is that we would likely respond in much the same way that they did here in this story. It's likely every last one of us has had doubts like theirs. The promise of God to us as his people is amazing. It is unbelievable that he has saved us. At times, it can be hard to believe that God will save us from our sin by grace alone, through faith alone, but it's true. But how we struggle with this, maybe on one hand, we might believe that, that we've been moral enough to merit salvation on our own, and so we don't need this spectacular grace of God. Or on the other hand, we might believe that our sin is too great, and so we need to earn back God's favor by our own good works. Maybe you're somewhere else on the spectrum of unbelief at times. I don't know where you're at, but remember the name of Isaac, laughter. God was able to take the unbelief of Abraham and Sarah and bring them joy. And as I said, I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you struggle with unbelief. But regardless, we all go there sometimes, right? We have moments where it seems as though this being saved by God's grace is just too good to be true because we know our sinful hearts. We know. We know it. And that's just the point, isn't it? The story of God's salvation for you is not a comeback story. It's not about how you were doing pretty bad and, and you made it back. That's not the point. God, the story of God's salvation for you is a resurrection story. When the Bible says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, it means it. Now, usually, we, we think of that image 
When the Bible talks about being dead in our sin, we probably think of it as a human body in a coffin. Maybe that's the image that comes to mind. But I want to challenge you today. When you hear about the deadness of your heart in your sin, imagine the image of the deadness of Sarah's womb. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to have new life. And you have it now because you have faith. Remember, all because Jesus lived for you. All because he bore the wrath of God for your sin and he resurrected for you. And because he is now at the right hand of the Father, we have great joy. So when you're plagued with doubt and unbelief, Remember that God will take that and he will turn it into joy. The laughter of derision in the story from Abraham and Sarah will soon be turned to laughter and joy by God by bringing the child of the promise into their lives. And God has done the exact same thing for you. Jesus Christ is the child of the promise and God brought him into your life to bring you joy and an assurance of salvation. Christ is the once and for all child of the promise and he takes our doubt and he turns it into joy because the salvation that he brings you is true. It's true. Every word of promise to you in the gospel is true. In Christ, you have been brought from death to life. In Christ, you have a promise that he will never leave you or forsake you. In Christ, you have the sure and certain hope of your resurrection from the dead and the promise of eternal life. So in the midst of all the difficulties you may face this week, let that gospel that is true, let it bring you great joy because you have new life in Christ. Amen.